Hey everyone, Vicky McLeod here. Welcome back to the show. This time I'm talking to Gomar Dulst, one half of the Instagram account Wad Science. We talk about myths around protein, is nasal breathing effective, why are elite athletes so good, and what he's getting up to in the lab with plant-based protein. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Europe is Coming podcast, taking you inside the minds of Europe's best CrossFit athletes and the people behind them. Welcome, Goma Dulst, to the Europe is Coming podcast. Um, you are one half of Wad Science, which is a really fantastic Instagram channel that I love to read about and I'm really happy to finally meet you Goma and I hope this will be the first of many Thank you. chats. I'm sure. <laughs> Goma, let's establish some credentials first. So what is your background and what are you qualified in? Yeah, from from a like research uh, point of view, I, I studied um, exercise sciences and biology in uh, the in Leuven, the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. It's close to Brussels, the biggest university uh, in, in in Belgium. Uh, that was that was four years. Got intrigued by um, physiology, exercise, the effects of ex- of exercise on health, um, and also the biology of exercise. So I started um, a PhD at the exercise uh, physiology lab in, in Belgium um, with, with Peter Hespel and Louise Deldic, two, two professors. And I studied the effects of high altitudes on um, muscle mass and on the reg- regulation of muscle mass. Because you have to know that, that if you, for example, have an expedition to um, the, the Mount Everest, um, people lose up to 15% of their muscle mass, uh, even when they try to eat sufficiently, drink sufficiently during that 60-day, 40, 50-day uh, expedition. So there are some cues to know how how, how this is possible. And, and more on the enzymatic uh, level, I, I, I looked at which enzymes are affected by hypoxia or um, low uh, oxygen environments. Then... Um, a professor um, that I started to work with at the end of my PhD uh, had the opportunity to start a, a new exercise and health lab in uh, Zurich uh, at the ETH uh, in, in Zurich, the, the biggest university uh, in, 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 in Switzerland, in Zurich, um, to start up literally the lab um, to try to establish um, what we're going to um, research. Um, and I was always interested in the interaction between exercise, nu- nutrition, and of course, uh, low oxygen uh, environments. So that is where I focused in. I published uh, several papers in that area on, on, on how um, specific molecules regulate cell growth, uh, muscle growth, um, how different proteins from, for example, uh, plant-based sources and um, animal-based sources affect the enzymes that regulate muscle growth uh, and so on. So I'm really like a molecular biologist focused on, on muscle. And then on the meantime, I um, was always a little bit frustrated, maybe it's interesting to, to maybe tell you now, uh, about uh, how the academic world uh, works. Like we do our stuff on the bench, like I'm in the la- laboratory now, but our work doesn't really get into the to the public, I found. And, and certainly sports sciences are very easy to to, to um yeah, transmit to, to the general public, I would say most people have some affiliation with plant-based uh, proteins or with exercise or, or with training, right? So I thought maybe we could 
try to explain some of the papers and all of the, the research studies we do to the general public. And, and therefore, uh, together with a, with a friend, colleague, who's also in the same field, Henning, Henning Langer, we started What Science, uh, because we're also interested in, in CrossFit and, and um, therefore the, the workout of the day and then slash uh, science. Um, and this took off like like a, like a comet, honestly. Uh, we, we didn't expect this because we are researchers, right? We, we, we usually don't really uh, disseminate our, 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 our um, studies to the general public. Um, so that's, that's how the ball went rolling four years ago. Um, of course, I've always been always been interested in, in participating in sports myself. I played golf um, at a high level during my high school and also uh, during, yeah, during my, my studies. And of course, I started CrossFit now a long time ago, nine years ago, to remain healthy for the challenge and also for the, the science behind it. Because, of course, there's a lot of different exercises, uh, a lot of different parts of physiology, um, and therefore I got really intrigued by by just the complexity of the sport uh yeah and that's that's where we are now to i guess the right place if i need some questions answering then <laughs> i i really love your instagram channel it is so interesting and and some of the myth busting that you do on there is really yep. really interesting so in the course of the interview today i'm going to ask you a few questions about a few little things yep. that we all, we all think are are just so but i think you might have a, another opinion and in fact some scientific research to back them up but my yep. first question yep. Yep. that i know is very broad and difficult to answer but i wanted to start with this is something that I guess fascinates most of us who are fans of CrossFit is how do the elite athletes become the best? Are they born that way? Yeah. I mean, of course they have to work at it as well, but is there something in their physiology that's separating them from us? Yeah. So yeah. For, for sure they have to work for it. Right. But let's, let's start not with the obvious uh, uh, point and let's say, certainly a, a good part is genetically determined like pick your parents wisely <laughs> that's what they always say right um so during my phd we did some some studies on on altitude uh, but also not on altitude where we put um twins so monozygotic twins so identical twins um on an exercise bike and let them bike to exhaustion basically a measurement of fitness like how high you can go um or how, how, how many watts you can push um the the fitter you are, uh, at least cardiovascularly. And there you can very clearly see that, that um, many of those, um, yeah, like, like if one twin was, was um, getting very high wattages and high VO2 max, we call it like that, so high, uh, achieved a high amount of fitness or high degree of fitness, the other twin was usually similar. And most of these people were not trained or did not really participate in, in sports. They were just students and uh, uh, studied uh, physics and so on. So even when the people didn't really uh, train day in, day out, there were some clear differences between twin pairs in fitness, right? So that we can already show, okay, there's definitely some genetic component. Which genes and which gene clusters are responsible, we kind of know, but it's very complex. Right. And then you have also the, the, the classic studies on families where I think uh, we're, we're maybe more talking about trainability, which is also very important. Um, this relates to. Um, so, for example, there's, there was one study that that uh, trained 
300 families, so three to four people per family uh, for six months, three times a week in the laboratory. So you have to think it's a very difficult uh, study to actually complete. Um, and there you could see huge genetic variation um, in between the families, meaning that some people trained for, as I said, six months and they gained like two to 3% strength and endurance, so very minor uh, effects. And other people, families as well, and also people, um, increased their, their strength and, and fitness by 15 to 20, even 30%. You see, so um, the, the, the effects of trainability, I think that's maybe even more important than how fit someone is, how trainable someone, someone actually is, uh, what effect the training have, have, has on um, the person uh, per se, um, is also definitely genetically uh, determined. Um, so have a high VO2 max, so high oxygen uptake just via uh, genetic disposal and also or predisposition. And of course, be well uh, trainable, I would say, as, a, as an elite Is athlete. there a way to improve your trainability? That's always a question. I think it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, a trial and error, uh, trial and, error and, and um, um, question about coaching, right? So if you see that you have someone who is um, well prepared for CrossFit, has the right statue, has a, has a high VO2 max, but is plateauing after one or two years, um, it might well be that you have to just change your uh, training principles, right? So that is very, very difficult to actually uh, investigate from a scientific point of view, I would say, um, because it's more an individual-based uh, effect. And of course, we always look at means or, or means of, of several several people. So it's difficult to know the, the, the individual um, yeah, effects of training in, in, in this case. So there is, uh, but I cannot give you like a scientific clue. And it's more about trial and error and, and see what's working best for your athletes as a coach. And therefore, the, um, the art of coaching is very important. What would you say that the art of coaching includes? Is that really just working on specific types of strength exercises and mobility exercises? Or is there more to it than that, do you think? I think there is more to it because now, for example, um, we have some tools like, for example, near-infrared spectroscopy, meaning Pardon? you can measure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not important. It's called NIRS, like the the acronym. It's a, a measurement of um, the amount of uh, oxygenated blood in the tissue, right? Um, and this is also, for example, uh, a tool we can use to individualize training, meaning um, you have an athlete that, um, how sh should I phrase it? Um, so before we just looked at heart rate or whatever spaces on, on certain workouts, right? And then you just have to kind of guess if this workout was the right stimulus. But now we have more sophisticated methods um, where we can measure what the training actually does with the muscle, at least with oxygenation of the muscle. And then we can, for example, adapt the training towards that specific parameter. For example, um, many coaches prescribe, certainly in endurance events, uh, very uh, low intensity, long training, right? To, to, have a, to, to build an aerobic base. But many CrossFitters or some CrossFitters at least also uh, adapt this, this approach and do whatever three to four sessions a, a week, 
very low intensity training. But the question is how low is how low intensity is this actually for the muscle itself? And this you could, for example, measure with this uh, device, and you can measure um, um, the oxygenation in, in the muscle, which should remain constant of or even increase during low intensity training, um, while the heart rate is maybe low, maybe high, probably low. Um, but in CrossFit athletes that are very muscular, even when the intensity is very, very low, like like easy spinning on, on, on a bike, it could mean that the um, oxygenation goes down throughout time. This means that the, the stimulus is actually too high and we should adapt the stimulus according to what happens, happens actually inside the muscle, you see? So we, we are trans, yeah, transferring from, from, from pure heart rate based which could be very low intensity towards more uh, individual and local based training. At least some coaches, at least sophisticated what, coaches. One what of the examples. What does it have on the oxygenation levels of the, um, to the muscle? Is it uh, the higher the oxygenation, the more the muscle grows, or the more it, or the more it works? Yeah, the more it works. So it's always a supply and demand, right? So the heart provides 100% oxygenated muscle, arterial blood towards. Um, uh, toward, towards the muscle. The muscle contracts and uses that oxygen. Um, and it's kind of the mix that you measure. So if the arterial blood is 100% oxygenated, the muscle itself is around 70% in rest, 60%, right? Once you start exercising, for example, at the high intensity, the demand outstrips the supply, meaning that the oxygenation will go down um, fast or slow depending on the intensity and if you want for example as an to build your aerobic base you don't want to um, decrease your oxygenation extremely because you will then start at least to some extent start working anaerobically because it's not enough uh, oxygen right so in this, this case you want to um, decrease the intensity even biking even slower to make sure that your oxygenation stays flat or even goes up because um, it could go up because of the fact that the, the, the supply is uh, increased and the demand is, is, is stable. So that's why the oxygenation goes up. Um, one of the, 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 uh, the, the ways. Another way would be, for example, if you want to do strength training. In strength training, um, you typically see a very steep decrease. It's almost an occlusion of the muscle of this um, of this, this uh, oxygenation of the muscle because you, yeah, you contract very firmly. Um, and therefore, you can um, also like tailor the training based on those parameters instead of percentages of 1RM or velocity of the, the, the bar. So this is one of the more advanced, advanced uh, training stimuli you can, you can now apply to CrossFitters, but also to strength athletes and endurance athletes. It's not athletes. something that a regular person could measure in a, in a gym, though, is it? That would have to be done in a, under a study. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good point. So when I did my PhD, it, it used to be such a device costed like 20,000 francs. It was with cables and only in a research setting. But now you have a, a brand, it's called uh, Moxie, uh, a Moximeter. And you can actually just uh, buy it. I think it's called, it costs 700 francs, so very cheap. And you can um, measure this, um, yeah, the, just uh, on the go uh, without any wires, uh, completely remote uh, during CrossFit sessions, endurance sessions, and so on. If you look uh, uh, in, at our page, I think I did five or six of those posts related to this uh, oxygenation of the muscle uh, measured with uh, NIRS. And uh, there's more and more blog posts about this, and, and this is really infiltrating in the training so uh, system. It's a very a interesting smart way thing. to improve your fitness. Yep. 
Yes, yes. Better than a heart rate monitor. For example, if you do a workout, it's always 100 and whatever, 70, 60. It's always mm-hmm. going to be the same, right? You you don't really get much from a heart rate monitor during a workout, like a 12-minute watt. But you could get a lot, of, uh, lot more uh, data from the oxygenation during squats or during push-ups and so on. You can, you can get much more information uh, from that. If you, if you know a little bit about physiology and, and you have a coach who knows a bit about physiology, I definitely believe in you're, that. You're not a big fan of fitness trackers, are you? No, I'm not really a big fan. Yeah, it could be more personal. I, I guess for some people, it, it, it helps uh, to, to motivate them to exercise. Um, um, I didn't really dig into the literature if this is actually true, like on the grand uh, scheme of things, I think it actually does uh, motivate uh, hmm. the average person. So, yeah. But for elite athletes, you need to you need to really um, yeah know what you, what you're measuring and 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 uh, see the see the in trees. The, in, the the mo- in the moment when they're competing, they they can't be looking at the um, fitness tracker no. anyway, can they? No. They just have to know no. how their bodies are feeling no. anyway. Exactly, exactly, and and this is definitely also, for example, just just as a, as a as a last example, this 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 device that I said, um, this could determine during training, of course, not during a, during competition, but during training, um, what's the best strategy? For example, I'm I'm thinking about a CrossFit workout, uh, Karen, which is uh, 150 oh, no, wall Karen. balls. Some people, <laughs> yeah, 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 everyone knows Karen, right? Like elite athletes. Yeah, maybe they go unbroken and they don't care about uh, sets. But most people, uh, of course, do some sets. And it like your your deoxygenation of the muscle could determine if you do small sets or you rather do big sets with a bit of rest. Um, this this can help you in your strategy, also in open workouts and so on. So that is uh, fun stuff to play with for it's sure. The deoxygenation of the muscle is that also the thing that creates the pain in the legs? For example, when you're doing Echo bike yeah, or yeah. is that what's actually making the, the pain? Yeah, it's a very controversial topic. Uh, so it's 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 a very controversial. So um, the deoxygenation is, as I said, is a result of that the uh, demand outstrips the supply of oxygen. So this means that if you deoxygenate very quickly, for example, indeed during a thirty-second bike sprint, um, the demand outstrips the supply of, of oxygen, and um, at least to some extent, anaerobic energy sources of energy systems um, will kick in. And when those kick in to produce the ATP or the energy you need, um, there is lactic acid that is formed. Um, and because the, the environment, the muscle environment becomes a little bit more acidic, this is thought to be the main cause of the the pain sensation and kind of the, the body that says, okay, now stop because you're inflicting um, a decrease in homeostasis and your pH is going down. This is bad for the cells and for other uh, yeah, uh, processes, you see? So um, it's, it's rather the anaerobic energy sources that produce lactic acid, so lactate and, and, and also the, the H plus uh, ions, and that decreases the, yeah, or that, that, defers the, the acidity uh, base in, in your in your in your muscle. So um, yeah. So it, it, it has so something to do with it. It is lactic acid that's building up in my legs when I'm sitting crying on an echo bike then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is it is lactic acid and then that that uh, is 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 like the H plus ions are 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 
what causes the 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 acidic feeling and the pain uh, feeling and those get distrib- distributed uh, through um through through the blood and also actually decreases the pH of the blood. So that's why people get uh, sick sometimes after CrossFit and uh, Mr. Mm. Mr. Pukey. That is because um, the the blood pH goes from 7.4 to sometimes 6.9, 7.0. And in that case, you have a, a clear disturbance of uh, homeostasis. And this makes you vomit or uh, like uh, makes you uh, not, not nauseous. And um yeah, that's that's why high intensity exercise inflicts such such. Uh, so in that case, it, like, going back to what you were saying before about if you about oxygenation, in if it's actually creating an anaerobic situation in your body, should you then slow down yes. or or take in order to remain oxygenated, or is it better to just train hard and yeah, hope your it body learns how to cope with it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it depends on the workout, I would say, or it depends on the, the, the exercise you have to do. For example, if it's um if it's Fran, which is which is three minutes of or four minutes or two minutes of just all out go for most people, you wanna produce as much energy per second or per time frame as possible, and you at that point point don't really care too much about the acidic environment or at least uh, about the fatigue uh, caused by anaerobic uh, sources because um, you know it's going to be short you hope you see <laughs> if yeah if it's an open workout 12 minutes 15 minutes even 20 minutes you want to pace it better because you only have a, a certain amount of of of, of anaerobic resources uh, and if you burn too, too much initially, you will have a, a, a steep increase in lactic acid. And um, yeah, to some extent, this will cause a fatigue for the next, uh, whatever, 10, 15 minutes of the workout. So there, in a, in a, in a in de facto, if you have a 15 minute workout, you will have more aerobic um, energy production. And this uh, aerobic energy production will, in any case, uh, produce less power per second than the high anaerobic, uh, high power output, such as a 30 bike, uh, 30 second bike sprint. So that's why you have to always have to uh, pace and know the time frame of, of your workout. Very important. I'm going to ask you a question about breathing because, like oxygenation, yeah. it's like that's really important, yeah. and obviously. A lot of us forget to breathe in, in the middle of stressful situations. But yeah. what, are, what yeah. do you think about the um, the current trend for nasal breathing? And like, why is that? Some people are claiming that it's a, a better way of getting oxygen into your body. What do you think about that? Yeah. First, I'm not really an expert on nasal breathing, but but I, I've read some studies and, and I've, I've, I've saw some, I've seen some claims which are not always very scientifically backed. But what you always have to think about is um, breathing, right? Breathing is the goal of breathing is to oxygenate your uh, your blood, your arterial blood to uh, yeah, to hundred percent, and elite at like. Norm, let's, uh, let's first talk about normal people, like like uh, uh, mortals. Um, during extreme intense exercise, like at the end of an open workout or at the end of an exercise test or ramp test to exhaustion, really at the at the point of exhaustion, at that moment you're of course hyperventilating, and at that moment your blood is still ninety eight percent, even hundred uh, percent oxygenated. 
right? So this means that your breathing apparatus is actually sufficient to provide still enough oxygen to your blood at um, at those um, at those intense uh, periods. You see, so there is never, or at least in in most cases, there's never really a problem of of breathing in healthy people. Interesting enough. Um, in elite athletes, because the demand for oxygen is so high, even uh, much higher than us uh, mere mortals, it could actually be that the 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 um, arterial oxygenation, so the, the the oxygen in the arterial blood uh, coming from the lungs, is actually uh, decreasing to 90 to 93 uh, percent. So in that case, one could say um, that the that's also because the blood flows so fast, let's say, through the alveoli of the of the lungs, that the diffusion time is too short, and, and and the oxygen molecules can actually not sufficiently enter the hemoglobin or the the arterial blood. You see, because because elite athletes they have such a high cardiac at, uh, output, the the blood is flowing so fast that actually the 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 breathing is is insufficient because the the, the blood flows so fast. Um, so. I've never really understood the rationale but, uh, yeah, of these breeding patterns and all the, the breeding because even yeah, in, 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 in intense situation, there's still enough oxygen in, in, in the arterial blood. What is, of course, important is that the breeding apparatus also, like the muscles, the diaphragm, also um, consumes oxygen, right? So it could be that this... Maybe you notice this breathing apparatus where you have where you push you have to breathe in, uh, against resistance, um, improve like the, the 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 breathing muscles, like the efficiency of the breathing muscles, um, and therefore you consume a little bit less oxygen to just breathe, and therefore you can improve your uh, fitness because you can uh, shunt more mu- uh, uh, blood and also oxygen, of course, to the muscles. Yeah, you see more what efficient. I mean. You're a more efficient breather. So in that case, it might make sense. Uh, also, the uh, the nasal breathing, certainly at, at lower intensities, it could it might make sense to, to improve your breathing efficiency, right? Um, and certainly when you train it, because when, when untrained people do an exercise test to exhaustion and they do nasal breathing, they will Pass decrease out. their performance, <laughs> right? Because... Yeah, because they pass out because it, they cannot indeed they can just not have a not like they cannot breathe efficiently sufficiently uh, efficient um, during the the higher intensities. But if you apparently some studies show that if you actually uh, train this and you 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 know how to do it after whatever uh, a couple of weeks of training, you can just perfectly do a maximal intensity uh, exercise test while nasal breathing. But again, you have to train it, and does it really help? Maybe minorly, but it won't won't really uh, change that much. I think it's always looking for that one percent, though, aren't they? So I can see why they might see that it's uh, something and to look it, at. It, it, like athletes, uh, what what I do suggest is um, if you do your uh, low intensity cardio bouts on the ERC, then you might want to do some nasal breathing to stop you of for for going too intense, to really keep mm. the pace down. Right, because once you start hyperventilating through your nose, it doesn't work. Your brain shuts down, and I say, okay, that doesn't work. So you have to decrease the pace. So that's why. Why I also heard uh, anecdotal evidence of people uh, using it like that to to keep the intensity down. So that makes, in my opinion, much more sense. Um, yeah, you don't see games athletes breathing through their nose no. uh, during a workout. Oh, I haven't. I mean, 
but they could train. That doesn't mean that they, they cannot use it as a training that's tool. That's true, to kind of practice. So yeah. that's, um, well, that's, it's interesting that, that I was expecting you to say, no, 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 that's absolutely, there's nothing in it. But actually, it sounds like there might be something in it. So I will stop. I've seen yeah, 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 yeah. There are some studies. Some, so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty extreme. But there are some, some studies showing that the, the breathing efficiency, so the, so the amount of um, uh, ventilation of, uh, compared to the amount of oxygen you take in, um, is actually more efficient during nasal breathing in trained nasal breathers. So, something to not practice gonna, in the off yeah. season, maybe. Refute <laughs> the science. Yes, exactly, exactly. And during low intense, uh, yeah, like like the slow, long, slow distance. Another work. thing that you you're very um, interesting to talk about, I think, is with the subject of nutrition and especially protein intake. Because there's a, a lot of yeah. confusion about when we should take protein. Is it important to take it? Yeah. Um, like get some protein in straight after a workout or timings, what type? I mean, it's a huge subject and very um, important for a lot of athletes. So, I mean, what would you, what's the common myth, do you think, about protein and how we use it? Common myth, yeah. Um... I think the common myth is that we need a lot of proteins to, to during strength training. Like like we, we need to eat uh, uh, protein all day. That's one. And also protein timing, I think, is a little bit of a myth um, that we need to eat our protein right after exercise. That is definitely a myth. That is that doesn't that's not really backed up by 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 science as long as your total protein intake of that day is sufficiently high. And with sufficiently high, I mean 1.6 gram per kilogram uh, body weight per day, right? So I weigh uh, for, for, yeah, what is that? For uh, um, uh, I weigh 85 kilos. So yeah, 190 grams or something like this, right? So you just um, multiply your body weight times 1.6. And that's the total amount of protein you should eat throughout the day uh, to support muscle mass and strength training uh yeah during intense periods same if you're a man or a woman does it make any difference about your physiology yeah it doesn't make but it doesn't it doesn't uh make uh, much uh, it doesn't make much difference no no so around this 1.6 which is not extremely high but it's also not the recommended 1.1 gram per kilogram that is in most uh, dietary and what books. about um the type of protein that we should be taking what do you think about yeah. whey protein for example because that's obviously most crossfit athletes yeah. are taking a lot of, of whey protein shakes every day to try to keep yeah. their intake up yeah yeah so um it's very convenient uh, whey protein, of course, you just uh, put it in a bottle and, and drink it after training, before training, two hours after training. So that's why most people, I think, do it. It's it's more convenient than eating a steak or and also <laughs> cheaper. Um, so it's it's still the gold standard whey protein. So I did quite some 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 uh, studies uh, related to whey protein in humans and in and in uh, mice. And what you see is that if you take a whey uh, shake. 30 minutes later, there's a, or 30 to 60 minutes later, there's a huge peak in the blood of essential amino acids. And the essential amino acids are the ones that trigger um, the, the machinery to stimulate muscle mass or to, to grow muscle mass, right? So that's why we always believed that uh, whey is important um, 
to yeah, support muscle mass because of this, this triggering of the machinery. Um, so that is, that's why it's the gold standard because it evokes this really quick rise in essential amino acids almost right after you've taken it. Other uh, protein sources, plant-based sources, ca- uh, casein, so, so other uh, sources that are also available, they, um, ev- yeah, they, they evoke a, a less uh, steep peak in uh, essential amino acids and plant-based sources, they actually um, are a little bit less bioavailable. This means that of the whatever 20 grams of pure protein you take in, less get actually into the muscle. There's some retention in the liver, some oxidation in the liver, uh, slower digestion and and so on, right? Um, So the bioavailability of plant-based sources is a little bit lower than uh, animal-based uh, sources, and certainly whey. That doesn't mean that vegans or um, people who don't eat meat cannot uh, get their protein intake uh, sufficiently high. Um, they just have to eat a little bit more, 20 to sometimes 50%, depends on the source you, you get, um, of total protein uh, during the day to, to, to reach that same um, bioavailability uh, in, in total. So that's kind of what, what is recommended, uh, that they just eat more uh, plant-based sources compared to the to the. To the uh, animal base, but there's, for example, no evidence that if you, again, if you have sufficiently high protein intake as a vegan, that you cannot grow the same amount of muscle as someone who eats animal-based protein. There's zero evidence for that. There's even training studies showing this. So, um, yeah, that's important. What to um, types of plant-based proteins would you recommend? Have you done any studies, or do you have yeah. any information about that? Yeah, we 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 actually have done some studies uh, in mice mostly, and we had a, a pea rice protein mix um, because pea um, for some reason has a high amount of essential amino acids, and it's always about this essential amino acids, specifically mm. leucine. So one of the the branch branch chain amino acids. Um, is leucine. And leucine is an interesting one because that's the specific trigger of the enzymatic machinery that triggers um, muscle protein synthesis and also hypertrophy. You see? So um, what is recommended to, um, if you eat a bolus of protein, for example, a meal or also a shake, that you get two to two and a half grams of the, the whole protein content as leucine. Um, so yeah, you can you can check it. It's usually on the label how much leucine there is in your whey. I think in whey it's ten percent, right? So um, most people eat twenty to twenty-five grams of whey per bolus. Ten percent of that is two and a half grams of leucine, and that is usually like the maximal trigger to um, improve your or, or to stimulate your muscle protein synthesis in the muscle. If you would eat more. The system is saturated, like the cells are um, cannot sense more than a certain amount of or a certain concentration of leucine in the blood, right? So that's why it doesn't make sense to eat twenty hamburgers after a workout. Maybe one is enough if you have two and a half grams. So as long as you've hit two and a half grams of leucine, you're yeah, fine. you're good. Plant-based or animal-based, it doesn't really uh, matter. To get to two and a half grams of leucine via a plant-based source, you will have to eat more than 25 grams of pea. I think it's going to be like 30 or 32 grams. You can check that yourself. Does it matter if you eat too much protein? It doesn't really matter. It it, it just doesn't really help your, uh, it doesn't further increase your protein synthesis. So they did some some quite elegant studies um, uh, in humans where they provided zero 
5, 10, 20, 40 uh, grams of whey protein after a workout and also in rest. And then they measured the amount of novel proteins that were synthesized, so newly built in the muscle, in the, in the thigh muscle, right? And um, so acutely, so zero to four hours after the workout. And you can see that um, if you take um, five grams, there's a certain stimulation, 10 to 15%. Um, but uh, if you twenty, uh, if you took tw of the the subject twenty grams, there's kind of a saturation compared to the forty grams. The forty grams didn't really improve uh, more the the protein uh, synthesis, right? So that's why it's not recommended to eat too much protein. It's just extra calories. It will be if you do it uh, consistently, it will just turn it into into uh, body fat, and it doesn't and it get also oxidized. So. Yeah, that's why it's not recommended. There's like a plateau. What do you think about um, timings of carbohydrates around workouts? Is that important? Yeah, that's more important. It's a good question because um, carbohydrates, they're taken up by specific transporters. It's called GLUT4. So in the muscle or at the surface of the, the muscle fibers, you have uh, certain transporters and uh, they um, take up the, the, the extra glucose, um, the carbohydrates, glucose in this case, that is uh, circulating in the blood. So after a workout, you... Um, you take up some glue, uh, you, you eat some carbohydrates to refuel, and those carbohydrates eventually, to some extent, end up in the in the tissues and certainly also in the muscle, right? And interesting enough, um, the um, usually, like in resting conditions, these transporters they sit. In, inside the membrane, uh, inside the, let's say, inside the sarcolemma, meaning um, not at the surface of the, the muscle fiber. That's the most important thing you have to understand. So not at the surface. They only get activated by insulin. So when you eat carbohydrates, there's, of course, an insulin secretion, but also by exercise, by muscular contractions, right? So if you do muscular contractions, there is a certain window where you have an enhanced ability to take up the, the glucose. And that is actually shown by, by, by human studies, um, shown that if you take the, for example, 30 grams of glucose or 60 grams of, of glucose uh, of carbohydrates after, immediately after a workout, it, more of that ends in the muscle compared to when you eat the same amount of carbohydrates um, 60 or, or, or maybe two hours or three hours after a workout. Just because these GLUT4 vesicles, they call it, are activated by muscular contractions. So how will that benefit you if you eat straight away afterwards? Um, if you're just a, a normal gym goer, it doesn't really matter too much. If you do three workouts per week, you go home, you uh, go to your family, your dog, and you uh, don't care too much about elite performance, it doesn't really matter. But if you're an elite athlete or at least a higher performing athlete, you always want to have... Um, Start your workouts, at least if you're not carbohydrate cycling, but let's let's keep that uh, for another uh, discussion, um, well-fueled, meaning that the muscles and the, and the liver as well are um, packed with muscle glycogen, which is essentially um, uh, glucose uh, molecules string together. So you have like a, um, an energy package inside the muscle and inside the liver, you see? So you always want to have... Uh, well refueled muscles. And um, an, an, an extra hack to do that is to eat your pro oh, sorry, so your, your carbohydrates, of course, right after exercise, because then the, 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 the resynthesis of this uh, glycogen will be faster 
compared to when you would um, uh, not eat the first three to four hours after a workout. So it's a kind of a difference with proteins, right? With the proteins, uh, studies show it doesn't really matter too much the timing as long as you eat enough throughout the day. With the carbohydrates, and certainly after long, heavy cardio-based workouts, you are pretty much depleted from your glycogen and you want to replenish that glycogen almost as quick as possible. Um, my exercise physiology professor always said that the Tour de France is one in bed and right after the, 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 mm. the stages because it's super important to refuel as quick as possible as, as, as well as possible. Right. And it's it's similar a little bit in competitions, CrossFit competitions. Right. You 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 have a lot of workouts, a lot of days, uh, and therefore your refueling uh, strategy is very important. I see uh, athletes straight after workouts, um, competitive workouts, just eating sweets, sweets and sweets and sweets. Yeah. Yeah. Very good idea. Yeah. 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 It's it's the fastest form of glucose, uh, carbohydrates, uh, so mostly a maltodextrin. And um, yeah, so so therefore you will uh, get them uh, quickly into the bloodstream. They, they're digested fast and they will therefore also get quickly yeah. into the muscle. So yeah, for a diabetic or a people with some overweight, it's probably not the best idea to eat some sweets. But for athletes, it really is actually a good idea, certainly for performance. And that is some distinction that is... Uh, sometimes uh, uh, poorly made uh, on social media and in blog posts and so on, right? Like the carbohydrates are the mm. enemy and so on. Maybe it's the enemy for people who don't exercise and 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 have not a lot of ac uh, activity. It's probably uh, a good idea not to eat too many carbohydrates, right? But if you're an athlete or even an active person that is very active throughout the day and does some workouts, carbohydrates are an essential uh, fuel source. And that's important to understand. I mean, apart from sweets after big workouts, does the quality of the food affect performance? Yeah, I mean, it's always been been said, and I think it's it's rightfully so that 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 supplements and also carbohydrate supplement and also uh, protein supplements are more the top of the pyramid, right? Like an athlete needs to eat whole foods, um, uh, whole whole foods packed of uh, also micronutrients and and, and fibers, um, and also the, the macronutrients, of course. So uh, it's kind of an addition to get enough energy in to fuel the workouts. But of course, the base layer is just a a healthy uh, um, diet consisting of slow carbs, so not always sweets, uh, enough protein. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be animal-based protein. It can also be plant-based protein. Um, but that is, uh, of course, uh, definitely important. And, and the supplements sometimes get too much attention, while yeah, the other part is also very important. You are going to be doing a study in plant-based proteins. Well, what will the basis of your work be? What's the premise? Yeah, yeah so the, the problem now is that the plant-based uh, sources, as I said, are lack some bioavailability, meaning that, that the, if you eat them, they're digested slower because plants contain some anutritious uh, molecules, I call it, like tannins, for example, and that slow down the digestion. And um, what we want to do is actually um, in the lab, we have found some, some, some ways to extract, um, yeah, to, 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 to um, extract the amino acids out of oat pulp. So now um, you probably notice there's a huge boom mm. in oat milk manufacturing huge. and oat milk everywhere in the stores. You see huge oat milk, right? But oat milk, is, it's very interesting. It's very... Um, 
it, it doesn't contain many nutrients. It doesn't contain any protein almost, 0.8 grams per, 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 per 100 milliliter, which is, um, what is this, uh, four to five times lower than normal milk, so cow milk. So very, not a lot of protein. It contains some fibers, a little bit of carbohydrates, but it's basically water with a little mm. bit of, 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 of uh, macronutrients, right? And um, because they, they, they manufacture oat milk by just um, soaking the oats in water, putting two or three enzymes to, to cut down the, the carbohydrates, the starches. Um, and then, yeah. Uh, and, and then getting the, the, the liquid form is then the oat milk. It tastes a little bit like oat milk, but it's basically, basically water. So what we're going to do, it's not, of course, not water, but you know what I mean. Um, and um, what we want to do is um, maybe upcycle the side streams of this um, oat milk manufacturing. So usually one third of this oat milk is just disposed and is uh, thrown um, in, in the, like it is burned or even given to, to animals, uh, which is of course also fine, uh, but we could maybe do more with it. And we found a way to extract and to improve the bioavailability of the amino acids in that oat milk. And we want to um, see if this actually can be upscaled and also uh, is, is valuable for, for human consumption. Uh, and it's also maybe we can at least our, our goal is to uh, to some extent replicate the findings on bioavailability um, or, or, or get the same bioavailability as uh, pea protein. Mm. Uh, this would be, of course, very interesting um, because, yeah, usually now nothing is done with that that side stream. And we want to improve and see if it actually could be. That would be great. Improved. Less less waste. Yeah, less waste. And now with, with, with all the, the, the problems in the world, the, the price of oats is also heavily skyrocketing. So the, the, the companies would be very happy, of course, to, to recycle some of their side streams. Finally, um, Omar, what, what advice would you give somebody if they wanted to, what would be the top three things that they could do to improve their athletic performance? In which, in in which sport? Not golf. <laughs> in CrossFit. <laughs> not golf yeah yeah um yeah of course a very open and difficult question uh let's 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 go from the the fact that that the person has some athletic ability but is sub elite mm, exactly. right um um yeah i mean it's 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 gonna be how trainable are you meaning how do you respond to training so figure out a way to measure this Meaning, do repetitive testing. Um, if you see that 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 one month, uh, whatever a certain workout you do a certain time, and then after two months of uh, intense training, your workout times don't really improve, figure out a way to change your training uh, schedule. Uh, maybe incorporate more aerobic based or less aerobic based uh, training to see if you could actually improve then the times whatever um, of your workouts two months later. So tests your progress. It's very important to, 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 to understand, right? Um, so, and then it's not really uh, related to physiology, but I think in CrossFit uh, movement efficiency is, is extremely important. And it's very important for sub-elite athletes, but it's, it's maybe even more important for uh, mere mortals. Like I also provide uh, CrossFit uh, coaching uh, at, at our local box. And I think the single most uh, thing, uh, the single, the, the single thing that can be improved the most is just move better throughout the the, the movements. 
if you just move better with the same amount of oxygen uptake or the same amount of cardio or strength, you improve your, your, your times um, dramatically. Right. And then the third, I think, is what Max, uh, sorry, Matt, uh, Matt Frazier always um, said is uh, don't omit your weaknesses. Mm. Right. Like if you certainly on the sub elite uh, level, if you want to make it to the to the elite level, I think you can almost have no uh, weaknesses. Uh, so you have to hammer the, the, the weaknesses to make sure you're more of an even athlete. And maybe that comes to the cost of some of your strengths. But I don't think that's too much of a problem. Because um, you just cannot suck in in two or three workouts in a weekend uh, of the quarterfinals because then you're out, right? If you win one workout, nice. But if you lose two or, or downwards at the, at the at the leaderboard, you won't make any uh, games. So um, yeah, the weaknesses are are super important. Probably also the most uh, boring stuff to do. Uh, and figure out, yeah, how what your, what, yeah, how your physiology. Is. So maybe one more specific um, uh, argument that I always take is is um, your pacing strategy or how you attack a workout can be completely different than someone else. It, you don't have always have to do big sets, right? Certainly in longer workouts. So. In short workouts, you have to go full send all out usually as an elite athlete. But in longer workouts, it could be that you benefit more of short sets in, in short rest than uh, longer sets and a little bit longer rest. It really, you don't always have to go uh, unbroken. And this depends on yeah your muscle physiology, your explosiveness. Are you more an endurance type person, uh, more an explosive person? Think about this stuff with your coach. And 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 l- learn from that and try to improve on that. Thank you. What um, who do you have your eye on for this year for the for the CrossFit Games? Have you got any any athletes that you follow that you are hoping are going to make it there? Uh, oh, that's a very difficult question. Um, you, uh, that I that I mean I have uh, uh, one one. Um, uh, athlete from from our uh, uh, from our box is a is a typical example of a sub elite uh, guy. He's called Jan Matiska and Matiaska, and he's a he's a he's the Hercules of 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 humankind. If you see him, it's like Hercules. Like the guy is um, unbelievably genetically disposed to be muscular. It's very interesting. And um, yeah, he used to be a football, I think, uh, or, or or ice hockey player. I think actually football. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's training, and and you really see him improving. And I wanna I wanna see how far he gets. Uh, um, usually, I think last year he made it to the like semifinals. See what, what happens. So I'm a little bit interested in the local guys. Um, yeah, of course, the, the the elites remain elites. I, I think there's not that much uh, real changing uh, in the in like the top three, like like uh, uh, for example, Pat Fulner and, and and so on. I, I still think those guys will will do well. Um, but yeah, just as a neutral supporter of the sport, I always like yeah, to, to just too. watch it and, and, and see what happens. I, I, I guess your uh, yeah. your local guy Jan is very lucky to have you knocking around. Yeah, we we we, we talk a little bit. Uh, yeah, we, we we talk a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm not involved in his coaching uh, and so on, but sometimes we 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 talk, and yeah, it's just uh, interesting to see how such a such a beast of a guy can actually also perform well in, in cardio mm-hmm. events and so on. And uh, it's 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 very interesting about the the sport of CrossFit, right? Like uh, many people can do it, and, and all statues, and, and yeah, it's a interesting sport from Definitely. a physiology point of view. You should get him under sure. the microscope, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be yeah yeah we should get we should we should measure his uh 
genetic uh, predisposition this would be yeah. i would love to get you back on again because i've asked you i've actually got loads more questions to ask you but i know that i got I yeah, mean, yeah. the longer i make a podcast the harder it is for people to listen but so maybe next time when we speak yeah, yeah. we could talk about muscle memory because we didn't get that far yeah yeah muscle just, memory yeah muscle we didn't memory get that far. is a thing which i um it's not just yeah it's a thing it's a thing it's also a thing that i even researched so i should okay, know a little bit about that the subject of the next interview Thank you so much. And um, everybody should follow Ward Science on Instagram for amazing insights yeah. and fascinating facts that have actually got scientific basis rather than just some yeah, yeah. influencer yeah. trying to pass off or sell you something. I think you're t you guys are yeah, doing yeah. a great job. Yeah, maybe just as a two, two more side Please. notes, if I, if I may. Um, yeah, so so Ward Science, um, why, at least I believe it's it's relatively un unbiased compared to other whatever uh, influencers mm. or how you want to call it um, is that we yeah we do it completely uh, voluntary and for free so meaning we don't take any sponsors and we really try to be unbiased and 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 how it i think should be to uh, uh, talk about scientific information right so so that's one of the the things and the second if you want to learn more about protein timing and protein intake much more detailed uh, scope we actually have a, an ebook on amazon yes yeah yeah i mean just want to pitch it. it because it's actually i think quite interesting for most people we really dig into some of the the studies for example the plateau with the plateau study with the 20 and 40 grams of whey protein and 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 with infographics uh, we explain it's relatively straightforward to read um, yeah you can just find it uh, via my name uh, googling my name on Amazon and then you find the, the, the I'll book I'll put a link to Amazon on the show notes as well then you can just ah, yeah, the yeah. Link. also easy thank you yeah thank you okay yeah, until great. next okay. time great thank, thank you, thank you. Okay, next time bye bye thank you Gomar it was a real pleasure to talk to you if you have any questions you would like me to ask Gomar next time then send me a message at the program on Instagram or email media at theprogram.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Europe is Coming is a program production and hosted by Vicky McLeod.